Well, as we join together with our friends who are worshiping with us in the Community Life Center, let me once again invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Ever since Christmas, we have been following Luke's account of the story of Jesus. The story of His birth, and His life, His ministry, His death, and ultimately His resurrection, which is where we find ourselves this morning as we come to Luke chapter 24. Those beautiful and familiar words that Luke records for, for us beginning in verse 1. Here's how Luke tells of that day. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you happen not to be familiar with how the New Testament is put together, it's helpful to understand that the New Testament begins with four different gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Each of the four tell basically the same story. It is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But each of the four tell that story with slight differences because, for one thing, each writer has his own style. And so, therefore, there are certain details that are illuminated in one account that maybe aren't in another. Sometimes there's a slightly different ordering of events. Certain things are drawn out in some places and overlooked in others. We see this uniqueness on display when it comes to the story of the resurrection. If you were to read the different accounts of the version of the story that we just read, you would find that each gospel writer tells the story differently. Who is it exactly that came to the tomb first? How many were there? Who said what and in what order? When did Jesus first make His appearance? 
the answers to those questions depend on which gospel account you're reading. But there is at least one thing that all of the gospel writers have in common, and one thing that is crystal clear amongst them all, and it is this. Nobody expected the resurrection to happen. With the exception of Jesus, it was a complete surprise to everybody who was involved in that mysterious morning. Now, in one way, that might seem a bit strange, given that Jesus had told his followers quite explicitly that this would happen. And he had told them not just once, but on multiple occasions. Because we're in Luke's gospel, let's consider when Jesus first makes that prediction in Luke's ordering of events. It happens all the way back in Luke 9, verse 22, when he says, and I quote, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he, he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now that's clear and straightforward. There's not a lot of hidden imagery there, no mysterious or obscure metaphors, just a clear, straightforward prediction of what's going to happen. Run ahead in the story to Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 31, he says something similar again. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. And yet, in spite of all of those repeated predictions of what's going to happen, Jesus' followers just hadn't yet gotten it. The truth of it all hadn't sunk in. We know that because of an important detail that Luke records for us when he tells the story. As we read a moment ago, when the women came to the tomb on that first day of the week, they came with spices. Well, spices are an important detail because they were a part of the ancient practice of preparing a corpse for burial. See, Jesus' body had been put into a tomb hastily, in a hurry, on Friday afternoon. Because the setting sun on Friday announced the arrival of the Sabbath. And when the Sabbath came, all work had to cease according to Jewish law. And so he, his body had hurriedly been placed in a tomb and it had been left there all Saturday, the Sabbath day. There hadn't been time to give it the full and proper respect it was due. And so now that the Sabbath was over, now that the first day of the week was upon them, the women came back to the tomb to do the grim task that the circumstances called for. They came to prepare the body for final burial. Now that fact tells us something vitally important. What was it that the women were expecting to find when they came to the cemetery on that Sunday morning? The answer is simple. They came expecting to find a dead body, nothing else. The idea, the possibility that Jesus might be alive, well, that wasn't even a possibility as far as they were concerned. And unless we become too harsh on these grieving women, let's note that the disciples' reaction was the same. 
Luke says that when the women came back from the tomb reporting what they had seen, that they'd had this vision of angels who had told them that Jesus was alive, well, the disciples dismissed their words as pure nonsense. At least one English translation says that the women's report sounded to them, quote, like an idle tale. Resurrection was the furthest thing from their mind. Nobody saw this coming. You might sometimes hear it said that it is impossible for modern people like us who live in the scientific age to believe in something as silly as resurrection because we know too much about how the world really works. That kind of religious superstition might be able to have legs to stand on in the ancient world when when people didn't know what we know. But if you've ever heard somebody make that argument, you're listening to somebody who clearly has not read the Scriptures because the Bible paints a very different picture. It turns out that people in the ancient world weren't any more ready to believe in resurrection than we are. They didn't need an advanced degree in biology or physics to understand that people generally don't get up and walk out of a tomb three days later. The dead tend to stay dead. That's just how the world works. The challenge they faced that morning is that none of their earlier expectations and their earlier experiences in life could have prepared them for this. None of their ways of thinking, none of their old categories of knowledge, none of their perceptions or assumptions or expectations about the way the world works could have prepared them for this. Everything they had ever known told them that resurrection simply wasn't possible. At least, not like this. We don't need to get too technical about it, but it is helpful to understand that by this time in Jewish life, there had grown up a a widespread belief that at the end of time, there would be a general resurrection of the dead. That when God brought everything to conclusion, He would call all back from the grave and everybody would face judgments. That wasn't supposed to happen until the end of time. That wasn't supposed to occur until God had wrapped everything up. But the idea that God might possibly do that here and now, in this moment, while history is still unfolding, the idea that God would call Jesus back from the grave while the earth still spins on its axis, well, that wasn't even an idea. And so when these haggard believers run up against an experience that they've never had before, they simply couldn't recognize it. A few years ago, I read about an interesting study that a group of social scientists ran to demonstrate how hard it is for us to see something when we don't have any way of expecting it. They sit you down at a table and they quickly flash a series of playing cards in front of you, and your task is simple. Name and identify those cards as quickly as you can, and they're measuring you. So there's a six of hearts, and there's a jack of clubs, and, and there's a nine of diamonds, but, but then there's this one card that, that you just can't seem to identify. It, it looks somewhat familiar, but, but as you gaze at it, you, just, you can't seem to form the words. They just won't come. What is that card? It's hard to say. So they run the experiment a second time, slowing things down a little bit to give you a a little more time to process things. 
but that mystery card still eludes you. You still can't seem to name what it is. They do it a third time, taking things so slowly that by now you think you're crazy for not being able to identify that card that's right there in front of your face. It's only after the game is over and they reveal all the cards that you see what the problem is. The mystery card, the one you couldn't name, it's a six of spades. The only problem is the spade is red instead of black. You can't see the red spade because everything you've ever known about life tells you that a spade is black, not red. And so when you come up against an experience that doesn't match anything you've ever had before, you don't have the words for it. You don't have a category to put it in. Your brain simply can't process it. That's kind of like what happened when the women came to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning. God had played a red spade, and they had no way of identifying it. So please note, please understand, that the first response to Easter was not joy or celebration or amazement. The first response to Easter was bewilderment, confusion, maybe even a little bit of fear because nobody knew how to make any sense out of any of this. I think Jesus knows that. He understands that. He has sympathy for us in that. Between Luke's account of the resurrection at the beginning of Luke 24 and the end of Luke's gospel at the end of Luke 24, Jesus will go on to make two separate appearances. Once to a couple of dejected followers who are walking from Jerusalem back to their home in a village called Emmaus. And a second time to the eleven remaining disciples. And in each case, we read that Jesus took those followers and went back through the Scriptures all over again, one more time explaining to them why all of this had to be the way it was. Now, I imagine that much of what Jesus said to them in those moments, much of the Scriptures to which He pointed them, they'd all heard it before. There wasn't anything new there. What was different this time was that now they'd had an experience that was different than what they'd known before. They'd had an encounter that didn't match up with their old expectations. And so now they could hear those old scriptural truths, but they could hear them in a whole new way. Because now their eyes had been opened to see that there really was more going on in the world than they previously had thought. Now that they've been confronted with something that's jolted them loose from their old expectations and their old assumptions. Now the real truth could begin to take hold in them. And take hold it did. Because from there... Those once bewildered and confused disciples would go on to do amazing things. Luke's gospel ends, as I said, at the end of chapter 24. But Luke wrote a second volume in the New Testament. We call it the book of Acts. And it picks up the story from there and records how those same disciples, the same ones who just a few nights before were scared of their own shadow, the same ones who had denied and abandoned Jesus. The same ones who didn't have a clue what was going on on that first Easter Sunday morning. Those same disciples went on 
to literally turn the world upside down. They would go out and preach bold sermons. They would perform miracles in Jesus' name. They would confront the rulers of the day. They would challenge the status quo. And with the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, they would go on to unleash the spreading of the gospel and the growth of the church throughout the known world. But that could not happen until after God had confused them real good on Easter. Please note the sequence here. Those followers of Jesus could not grasp hold of an authentic Easter faith until after they had gone through a season of confusion. It was necessary for God to knock them loose from what they once thought was possible. God had to shake them free from their old assumptions and their old expectations. All their prior assumptions about how the world really works. Well, he had to free them loose from all of that. And the only way to do it was to confuse them for a time. The dictionary defines confusion as a state of being perplexed or disoriented. When you are confused, things don't make immediate or obvious sense. When you are confused, the old certainties don't apply anymore. And in order for the resurrection to take hold in the lives of His followers, Jesus had to first confuse them because they had to be willing to let go of what they once thought were their old certainties, like the one that says death is death. Had to break them free from all of that to begin to see that there's more going on in the world than they had imagined, that God's power exceeded anything that they dreamed possible. I would suggest to you that confusion is sometimes a necessary part of Easter faith. Of course, it's always been that way to a certain extent. Read through the Bible, follow the story of God's interactions with His people, and you will encounter case after case and story after story of, of people being forced to move out from what they once thought they knew. People being asked to let go of what was once comfortable and certain and familiar and predictable and to move out into something that was unknown and uncomfortable and, well, confusing. And it would only be after moving through that season, that place, that time of confusion that the next chapter of God's great covenant would unfold before them. So there's old Abraham settled down in the family home in Haran, prepared to live out the last of his days in quiet stability. When one day God whispers in his ear, and tells him to pick up everything he has and leave what he has known and go to a place that he will show him. Notice the verb tense there. He won't know where it is until he gets there. And oh, by the way, Abraham, as you go, you and your wife Sarah are going to have a child. I know you're in your 90s, but don't worry about that. I got this one covered. And through that child, you're going to go on to be the father of a nation that has so many descendants there will be more than there are stars in the sky. Did it make sense? Absolutely not. But Abraham went anyway, and so began the unfolding of God's covenant love for his people Israel. They are the Hebrew people enslaved in Egypt for centuries until God finally sends Moses down to lead them out into freedom. Did they celebrate? No. 
Why? Because in order to get to the freedom, they had to go through this place called the wilderness. And it was uncomfortable and it was unfamiliar and they didn't like it one bit because nothing that they thought they knew about life applied there in that barren place. They used to complain and moan about how they wanted to go back to Egypt because at least there they had these big pots of meat that they could sit around and and eat till they were full. At least there they knew what to expect. But out here in this barren wilderness, it's all just so, well, confusing. And yet it was only by dragging them through that wilderness that God could get them to the promised land. There's mighty, confident Paul on his way to Damascus, letter in hand to arrest any Christian believers he finds there. Sure, he knows what he's doing. When all of a sudden, a blinding light knocks him to the ground and a voice calls to him from the heavens and calls him to come and serve the very Jesus he has been persecuting. And with that, the once confident Paul goes blind temporarily and has to be led around by the hand for three days. His old certainties jerked out from under him. It was for a time at least very confusing and disorienting. But because of that, Paul would go on to be the great apostle who would write almost half of our New Testament. Of course, all of that pales in comparison to Easter when Jesus' followers came to a tomb expecting to find a dead body, but didn't. The tomb was empty. The certainty of death had been overturned, even though they couldn't even begin to comprehend how it was possible. The journey to Easter faith always leads through confusion. Back in May of 1993, I graduated from college. Like most college graduates, I was confident in myself and in my world. The world was going to be fortunate to have me unleashed upon it. I knew where I was headed, what I wanted to do, at least for that next season of my life. Just as importantly, I knew what I believed. My faith was all buttoned down. Everything all secured in its place. Everything made sense. And so I headed off for graduate school, ready to move into what was next. And then the wheels started to come off. For one thing, I came to the quick realization that what I was studying and pouring myself into was not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. That was a bit unnerving. But even more importantly, And even more significant in my journey, I found myself thrown into a crisis of faith. I began to wrestle with doubt in a way that I never had before, and it was frightening. The things that I once believed so easily were now thrown into question. And add to that the fact that I was in a strange place at a strange school where I knew no one. Well, let's just say it was all a bit unnerving. I was in a dark place. I would even go so far to say that I fell into a season of depression. I remember during those days longing for an easy return back to the old certainties and the old comforts. But in spite of that, that cloud of confusion just continued to hang over my head. 
Now, I don't have time this morning to explain everything that went into bringing me out of that place, but I will say this. It was during that season that I changed direction and began to answer what I believed to be a call on my life to vocational ministry. And that set me on the path that brought me to where I am today. In that season, what I wanted most was God to rescue me from it, to bring me out of it. And eventually He did. But only after He used it to show me something new. Something that I might otherwise have never seen. You see, I had to be shaken loose from my old assumptions and my old expectations and my overly simplistic, still somewhat childlike faith. God had to break all of that away from me and lead me through a time of confusion so that He could bring me out on the other side of it and show me something about myself and His call upon my life that I had not previously considered. It was only then that I began to realize there's more going on in this world than I had imagined. The road to Easter faith leads through confusion. Now I don't for a moment assume that your story is the same as mine. And I certainly do not mean to suggest that the only way out of a difficult time is to go become a preacher. God's calling on each of us is unique. But I am willing to bet that you too have been through a season of confusion. There may even be some of you here today who would say, yes, I am in that place right now. Something about your old life has broken loose. What used to be clear and obvious and comfortable to you isn't anymore. Maybe an old, important relationship has ended. Maybe a career change has been forced upon you. Maybe your family is going through a season of transition and the old patterns of relating to one another simply don't apply anymore. Maybe your faith has been challenged and you are questioning things in a way you never have before. Maybe a loved one has died. And whatever the case, the result is confusion, uncertainty, maybe even bewilderment, maybe even fear. Because you're perplexed, you're disconcerted, you're, you're disoriented, you've run up against something you've never experienced before, and your old categories of knowledge simply don't have a place to put what you are encountering right now. I know from my own journey that that is not a fun place to be. But what if I told you this morning that that may be a necessary part of your journey? You see, just like with those first followers of Jesus, He sometimes has to break us loose from our old assumptions, our old expectations, our old patterns of defining what's possible for us or true in the world. He's got to break us free from that in order to show us that He is actually doing something we hadn't imagined before. That He actually can raise the dead. Until that happens, 
He can't really do his full work in us. That's why I would suggest to you this morning that the real journey in life is not the journey from unbelief to belief, because there really is no such thing as pure unbelief. Everybody believes something. We all have our assumptions and our expectations about life. We all believe something about what's possible, what's necessary, what's true. The question is not, do you believe? The question is, what do you believe? Well, on Easter, a guy who was supposed to be dead meets us and says, you know what, you might want to rethink all of that. Because I've got some things to do in the world that you hadn't thought of before. And so the real journey is not from unbelief to belief. The real journey is from confusion to faith. Trusting God to bring us through that time of bewilderment and uncertainty and to bring us out on the other side with a larger view of life. Moving out of our limited ways of understanding and following and allowing the risen Christ to do what we hadn't thought possible. Our passage today ends by telling us that Peter ran to the empty tomb and then went away wondering what had happened. Maybe we would all do well to leave here this morning asking ourselves the same question. Let's pray together. We marvel, O oh God, at what you have done. At times we are slow to believe it and even slower to trust it. Yet don't let go of us. Do not give up on us. Continue to come back to us. May the risen Christ continue to present himself to us until his truth take hold in our hearts and in our lives. Come and be the risen Lord we need you to be. This is our prayer. We make it in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The participants in that first Easter Sunday had to come to some decisions about what they were going to do with what they had encountered. And as the story unfolds, we see them doing just that, and the results were, well, quite amazing. What is our response? What are we going to do with what we've encountered this morning? The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. So they say. Are we going to respond in trust and faith to that? If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as Savior, never acknowledged Him as Lord, then as we close out here in just a moment, I would invite you to come forward as we celebrate that. But if there's any other response you need to make to seek membership in the church, to just to seek prayer with a brother, whatever it may be, I'll be here to receive you. But the call is to all of us to respond to the risen Christ. Let's stand and worship him together.